Someone who recognizes that God alone is worthy of our praise will see that he is worthy of our total and complete trust. And someone who has learned that God alone is entirely trustworthy will recognize pretty quickly that he is eminently and entirely praiseworthy too. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we continue our journey through the Psalms and today coming to Psalm 146. Jonathan, um, sounds like you're really drawing this really strong connection between the trustworthiness of God and how worthy then he is of our praise. Well, I guess those do go together in the scriptures, don't they? God calls for our praise because he is entirely worthy, and we see his worthiness in all his acts and all his faithfulness in all his words and in all his deeds in Scripture. And we see those things confirmed in our own experience as well as we trust in the Lord and and walk with him. We, we learn by experience that he is worthy to be praised. Well, we're going to continue to look at this truth today from the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 146. Hope you'll grab a Bible. Join us there as we begin a message that's called Placing Our Trust in the Right Place. Here is Jonathan. I wonder if you have ever been disappointed by a leader, a person of influence or power, a person in whom you have put your trust. Many Thousands of believers are feeling bruised and disappointed at the moment because of the public fall heralded in major news outlets all around the world, the the fall of yet another prominent evangelical leader. There's no escaping it. We will all be disappointed at times by politicians, civic authorities, teachers, corporate bosses, community leaders, people who Hold out the hope of protecting us, caring for us, directing us, promoting our very best interests, but who in one way or another turn out to be unable to carry through on all those promises in the long run. For some here in person, some listening, even the mention of this subject area, this theme, it is painful because there are some very raw wounds for you. For others, perhaps this sparks a memory. For others, perhaps, many of us, this is a warning, perhaps, of things to come. Psalm 146 is the first of the closing set of psalms with which the book concludes. The final five psalms are all psalms of praise. Each one begins with the call to praise the Lord, and it ends with the call to praise the Lord. And so the book of Psalms as a whole appropriately concludes with this repeated refrain, this emphatic instruction, praise the Lord. If the opening and the close of this psalm call us to praise God, the rest of the psalm, all that comes in the middle, it gives us reason to praise him. It shows us why he is worthy of our praise. And in all this, the particular focus in this psalm is the trustworthiness of God, his ability and his faithfulness to help us and to save us. 
The structure of the psalm and the basic flow of its logic is, is very simple. I'd just like us all to see it together and then we're going to walk through it together. The psalmist first calls us and calls himself actually to praise the Lord. That's verses 1 and 2. He then admonishes us, warns us not to do something else, not to put our trust in princes, in human leaders, in people of influence, verses 3 and 4. And then really in the remaining verses, he draws our hearts to put our hope in the right place in the Lord himself. Now, in a sense, at first glance, the call to praise and the call to trust, they could seem just a little bit disjointed thematically. Is, you know, is the psalm about praising him or is it about trusting him? But of course, as we reflect on that for a moment, those two things, they go hand in hand. Someone who recognizes that God alone is worthy of our praise will see that he is worthy of our total and complete trust. And someone who has learned that God alone is entirely trustworthy will recognize pretty quickly that he is eminently and entirely praiseworthy too. And you know, you and I this morning, we need to recognize both truths and we need to learn afresh to do both things. We begin with this opening call to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. A good preacher, any good preacher, knows that it's important to preach to oneself any message one would preach to others. I'm I'm conscious each week as I prepare that I want to do my best anyway to make sure that I am trying to internalize and apply to myself any message that I would then speak to others. The psalm opens with a call to the believer and beyond us, I think, even to the listening world. The the psalm opens with this call to praise the Lord. But, you know, in the very next breath, the psalmist turns inward and he applies the message to himself. In, In a sense, it becomes pretty clear that he is actually speaking first and foremost to himself. He turns to address his own soul as the psalmist sometimes does. He does it in the second line. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And notice what he does next. He expresses a personal resolve, a resolution to praise the Lord, not just today or or tomorrow or next week, but no, for the whole of his life. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. As long as I live, I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. You know, we human beings, we tend to be very driven by our feelings and by our emotions. We, we are accustomed, I think, to doing things, to taking particular action based on how we feel at any given time. We actually, I think, in our current society are beginning to feel a very strange sense of burden to be true to our feelings at any given point in time. If I don't feel emotionally committed to a relationship or or a career or a particular course of action, then, you know, to be true to myself, I should actually just step away from that thing. I should get myself out of it. Isn't that a common way of thinking at the present time? But notice what the psalmist is saying and what the psalmist is doing. I I was quite struck by this and I wanted to highlight it for all of us. He's not saying, you know, I'm just, I'm so in love with the Lord today. (laughs) I'm so full of the joy of knowing him and trusting him and walking with him. You know, I just can't help myself but praise him. And and so, you know, I'll I'll do that today. That's how I'm feeling. So that's what I'm going to do. No, I mean, he may well be feeling that way. 
We don't know how he's feeling. But what he's actually saying here is a little bit different. It's profoundly different. He is making a long-term, lifelong commitment to engage himself in singing the praises of Almighty God. And, you know, in doing that, he is moving beyond feeling or emotion or inclination, and he is making a deeper commitment of a deeper kind in response to the Lord and who he is. And as the psalm goes on, as the thing progresses, he is going to show us and tell us, demonstrate to us really, why he is making this commitment based on the Lord's trustworthiness. That's what we'll see. But it is a commitment that he's making. I can see that the Lord is fundamentally, unchangingly praiseworthy. And whatever may come my way, I'm going to praise him as long as there is breath to be found in my lungs for as very long as I have my being. And friends, as I notice that here in the psalm, as I notice the psalmist disciplining himself and committing his own soul to this, you know, I am challenged personally to ensure that I have the same approach. You see, there are days and there will be days when you and I just do not feel very much like praising the Lord. Ever had a day like that? There'll be days when praise is not our first instinct or our natural instinct. But in the words of verse 2, the psalmist models for us a commitment to praise the Lord each and every day, whatever that day might bring. As we pause to think about it, it's actually quite interesting, I think, that the book of Psalms ends with these five psalms which all repeatedly call upon us to praise the Lord. You know, it's just interesting that we need to be called, told, exhorted to do that. Presumably, if the people of God would always naturally and instinctively praise the Lord all the time, the word of God would not need to call us again and again to do it. But it does take a spirit-inspired, spirit-enabled act of the will to praise God continually, to praise him, not just in the times of joy and of ease, but in the times of hardness and difficulty too. And for some here, I guess, you personally will be in a season when praise is not coming naturally to you, is not found naturally upon your lips. You're in a season of trial, a season of grief, a season of sadness. And perhaps this is just the reminder this morning, the prompt you need. The psalmist's model is what we need to see. It's what we need to hear. This model of training our hearts to praise the Lord, whatever the season. We do, of course, know something of the power of habit and self-discipline for training the affections of our heart. We know this in the secular world. It's something we all understand. I was just reflecting, actually, this morning on the fact that in many schools, in our, in our own children's school, each day, in normal times anyway, begins with the singing of the national anthem. Very interesting thing. I remember that when I was a kid. And I think the reason for that is quite simple. It is to teach the children a sense of patriotism, a love for country, a devotion to country, which is no bad thing, of course. And, you know, the kids, they come home humming the national anthem sometimes and trying to figure out how the French version actually maps onto the English version, something I still haven't quite understood. But anyway, there, there is a training of the heart that comes through a daily discipline, isn't there? And there's much more profound spiritual equivalent to be found here. I will praise the Lord, says the psalmist, as long as I live. I will 
sing the praises of my God while I have my being. That's a positive instruction. We're to praise the Lord. We're to call our soul to praise him because he is praiseworthy. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth and a message called Placing Our Trust in the Right Place. Now we're going to pause here for just a moment, but I hope you'll stay with us because we'll get back to the message and continue our look at Psalm 146. This is part of a larger series called Songs of the Heart. And if you've missed any of the broadcasts in our series, you can come and listen online. The website is EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, not only can you listen to this program through your computer or mobile device, but you could also download an MP3 for free. You can check out our social media links and connect with us there. Sign up for our newsletter and check out the weekly e-devotional. You're going to find links to all that and more when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, if you did happen to join us a bit late, we're in Psalm 146 as we get back to the message, placing our trust in the right place. Here is Jonathan. We're to praise the Lord. We're to call our soul to praise him because he is praiseworthy. But the psalmist knows that our eyes will easily drift from the Lord to the people of this world here below. And rather than praise God, we would so easily honor and exalt people instead. And so now comes this important negative instruction, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes. Praise the Lord, put not your trust in princes, verse 3. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth on that very day. His plans perish. I think we're always inclined to place our hope and our trust in impressive people, in leaders of various kinds in the world all around us, in the princes of our society, in the sons of men, that is, in human beings like you and and like me. The instinct to hope and believe that a great leader can provide the help and the guide and sometimes even the salvation that we need, that instinct and that inclination, it dies hard in the human heart. It seems that with each new political election, there are many who place all their hope in the new candidate, the leader of the new party, the new name on the ballot. We've all seen it countless times before. The drama is repeated in this endless cycle of predictability. And whether that new leader ultimately does well or does poorly in relative terms, whether they have a successful time in office overall or sort of flame out in scandal or catastrophe, the brightest hopes of their followers at the beginning, they are never realized in the end, nor can they be. We know that reality in the National Forum. We know it in the church as well. A new leader comes along within the local church, within the denomination, within the seminary. There's a new author or speaker or writer or broadcaster or guru of some kind, and, and a following develops. The devotees begin to hang on that person's every word, and some can actually then become quite dependent upon a leader dependent emotionally, intellectually, theologically, spiritually. But however good that leader is, whether they end well or end badly, the highest hopes, the greatest expectations of their devotees, they will never be satisfied, will they? They'll never be realized. You and I, we often know this phenomenon, this dynamic, in a more personal way as well. There's a a mentor. There is a counselor. 
There is a manager. There is a confidant. Someone we know, someone we look up to, someone we revere, someone we respect, and we depend upon them. We come to depend upon them to help us navigate life and just make it through. But however faithful and however good and however wise they may be, there comes a day when their help will fail us. That's the reality. The same, it's, it's true of leaders in every sphere we can think of. On the big scale, on the small scale, in the scientific world, in the medical world, in the business world, in the world of sports, in the world of the arts, in the world of culture, it is easy, isn't it, to fixate on a leader, to place great hopes on a leader, to come in many ways to rely upon that person. But the psalmist warns us wisely and clearly, put not your trust in princes, how we need to hear that. Don't do it. Don't put all your hope in some human leader. Don't do it, he says, and he gives us two reasons why. The first is found in verse three. Don't place your trust in a human being, in a son of man, verse three, for this obvious reason, they cannot offer salvation. Yeah, it's such a basic point, isn't it? It's obvious when we hear it, but we do need to remember it. Other human beings, they can offer us substantial help in various situations. They can offer leadership and guidance and resources if they happen to be influential. But they cannot actually save us in the way that actually counts, that really counts. They cannot overcome the great problem of death, the looming prospect of the grave, nor the underlying fundamental problem of our sin. You see, were our greatest need a new social policy, I guess good politicians could help us. Were our greatest need a vaccine, as we might feel that it is at the present time, perhaps the doctors and the scientists could help us. Were our greatest need funding for a new project, the wealthy philanthropists could perhaps help us. Were our greatest need a piece of infrastructure or technology, the engineers and the scientists perhaps could help us. But none of those things is our greatest need as human beings. Our greatest need, what is it? It is to be made right with the God who made us and who will judge us to have the record of our wrong wiped clean, to have the sentence of death lifted from us. And no ordinary human being, no ordinary son of man can help us out there. In fact, the rest of humanity, rich or poor, influential or unknown, powerful or powerless, all the rest of humanity, all the other sons and daughters of men, they are all in the same boat with us. All of us, sons and daughters of men, we need saving. All of us, that is, except the one who came down from heaven and became the Son of Man, the God-Man, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus can save, and at the cross, Jesus did save. But let's be clear, no one else can save. Don't trust in princes, first, because they cannot save, and second, because they will soon die. And it's a related point. Verse 4. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. When someone at the height of their powers, a great leader in office with energy and resources and influences, whether it be a business leader or a, or a tycoon, a, a, a political power broker, it's almost impossible, isn't it, to imagine them at that point growing old 
and losing their powers and eventually succumbing to the grave. But that is the obvious reality of what will come to every human leader, every prince among us, every great leader. However powerful they are in their prime, they will soon enough become a footnote of history and nothing more. And while we might turn to them for leadership or intervention or help in their day of great influence, if they are inclined to help us, they only have the ability to do so while they have breath in their lungs and that breath won't be there for very long. A few years ago, two economics professors, one British, and one Norwegian undertook a study of the impact of a founder's death upon the company that he or she started. And and their findings in the study were pretty remarkable. It was a fairly wide-ranging study. What they found was that the impact was greater than anyone could have anticipated. Most business founders hope to leave a legacy, don't they, of a thriving business to their heirs. But, you know, it turns out that that is a very difficult thing to pull off and pull off well. The impact of the founder's death is profound. In the first four years after that founder's death, sales plunge on average 60%. Staffing levels drop appreciably, and the likelihood of a company failure increases markedly. Leaving a legacy beyond the grave, it's hard. It's hard because our plans die with us. That's just the reality of mortal life. And that's a wake-up call. That's a warning. It's a reminder. Rather than putting our hope in princes who cannot save and who will die, the psalmist calls us, beckons us, invites us to the way of blessing and urges us, put your hope instead in the Lord. Verse 5. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Now, in calling to mind Jacob, one of the great patriarchs of Israel, the grandson of Abraham, father of the 12 tribes, in doing so, the psalmist is reminding us that the Lord is the covenant-making, promise-keeping God. He's the God who all those years ago called a man named Abram tapped him on the shoulder one day, told him to to leave his father's home and go to a new land that the Lord would give him, who promised to make of him a great nation, promised to bless him and through him bless all the peoples of the earth. And of course, the psalmist mentions that name, drops that name, highlights that promise, calls to mind that family in order to make one very, very simple point. God has a track record, a historical, verifiable track record of keeping his promises and acting in faithfulness. That is Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, our message, Placing Your Trust in the Right Place. It's from Psalm 146 and part of our series called Songs of the Heart. And if you missed any part of today's broadcast or any previous program in the series, you can always come to the website and you can listen online totally free. Just stop by and you can download the MP3 or you can stream the program through your computer or mobile device. The website also a great place to go to learn a little bit more about this ministry and about Jonathan. Our website address, EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported broadcast. It is your generosity that keeps this teaching on this station. So thank you for giving to and supporting this ministry. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to send you a book that you've picked out, Jonathan. It is called Worthy, Living in Light of the Gospel, And I got to ask, what does that mean to live in light of the gospel? 
Well, you know, the, the way in which we live, our behavior, our lifestyle, it doesn't save us. The gospel tells us that we couldn't save ourselves, and Jesus gave his life for our salvation, that we could be forgiven and restored to relationship with God. But what we need to understand is that having been saved through the gospel, there is a way to live in light of the gospel. The gospel will change our behavior and our lifestyle and and the way in which we approach decision-making and the nature of our interactions with others. And this book is a call to live in light of the gospel, to allow the gospel to have its impact in our day-to-day lives. And I think we need that help. We need that encouragement. And I hope it'll be an encouragement to you as you read it. Well, we want to send you a copy of this book, Worthy is our way of saying thank you for supporting the ministry this month. Give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or over the phone when you call 833-998-7884. That's 833-99-TRUTH, or again, the website is EncounterTheTruth.org. You can also write us at Encounter the Truth, 2176, Prince of Wales Drive, Ottawa, Ontario, 2KE0A1, or in the U.S. at Encounter the Truth, 215 North Arlington Heights Road, number 102, Arlington Heights, Illinois, 60004. For Jonathan Griffiths and our producer, Mark Bretta, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time.